of uh, getting the 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 mousse inside that rich chocolate cake. Of course, this mousse based uh, chocolate cake is plant based. I'm not arguing for any uh, dairy based <laughs> stuff here, <laughs> but. This is Dr. Neftali Serrano, and this is the Integrated Care Podcast, the official podcast of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am so excited about today's podcast. This is a super fun podcast. It's so super fun that I'm going to make our usual lead-in super short. I usually remind you about stuff like our conference. If you don't know that our conference is going on in Rochester, New York, this October 18th, I don't know where you've been, or maybe you're new to the integrated care world. Either way, check out integratedcareconference.com for all the information. It's going to be a great time. And if you want to meet us live and in person, that's the place to be. We'll be hosting a live podcast at that time. So uh, that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. Obviously, we want you to subscribe um, and listen to us so you can check us out on SoundCloud. You can also check us out on our official news site, integratedcarenews.com. Um, and uh, listen to us there. iTunes is the other way that you usually listen to us. So enough of the business. Thanks for listening. Uh, Today we've got two special guests in addition to our regular cohort of folks. So let's go around, uh, reintroduce everyone. Uh, We'll start with our special guests today, uh, Julie and Brian. Julie, uh, why don't you go ahead and let folks know who you are and then after you introduce yourself, I will let the folks know why, why you're here special as a special host for us today. Well, thank you so much for having me today. So I'm Julie Oymaj. I'm a psychologist, and I'm currently adjunct faculty at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. Um, I have a long background in uh, working in primary care, both as a behavioral health clinician, working in teams, um, and also um, as a leader sitting at leadership tables with uh, primary care operations leaders and medical directors and uh, to operationalize behavioral health clinicians um, across multiple primary care clinics. Um, I also do some consulting uh, for organizations now. I work with primary care clinics to help them figure out all the operations of uh, putting in BHCs in their care teams, Um, and I'm associated with um, Mountain View Consulting. Awesome. We are so excited to have Julie. Um, And again, I'll tell you in a second why we have Julie on with us today. But first, let's uh, have our second special guest co-host, Brian. Brian, let people know who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, So I'm Brian Sandoval. Uh, I'm also a psychologist. Um, I am the clinical director for uh, a large federally qualified health center called the Yakima Valley Farm Workers Clinic. And we are based out of uh, Yakima, Washington, but have sites in in, uh, Washington and Oregon. Um, And I've had the pleasure of working with uh, Neftali as a postdoc. So, uh, so excited to be here. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, that, that feels like many years ago now. So, <laughs> so Julie and Brian are special co-hosts with us today because today's topic is uh, covering all things PCBH. We're celebrating the uh, launch of a special issue on the primary care behavioral health model uh, that's in the Journal of Clinical Psychology and Medical Settings. And so we, so we thought, what better way to do that than to have two of the authors live with us on the show and Julie and Brian uh, were instrumental in, um, in uh, authoring articles in that edition. Uh, we also have, at the end of our show today, we'll have an interview that uh, Grace Wilson did with the co-editors of the special edition, so uh, stay tuned for that later on. But before we jump into that, I know that you guys have missed hearing from our stellar podcast team in the last month. You'd like to hear about uh, hear their voice, make sure that things are great with them. So uh, let's hear from the podcast team. Uh, guys, say hello. Deepu, why don't you uh, uh, say hello to the audience out there? And um, yeah. All right. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you choose to listen to us. This is uh, Deepu George from the Rio Grande Valley. Awesome. And Jeffrey, why don't you say hello? 
Good morning, Jeffrey Ring, health psychologist in Los Angeles, a consultant with um, Health Management Associates, and do a lot of work on uh, behavioral health integration, as well as um, really trying to take a hatchet to health inequities and health disparities. Glad to be with everybody. I'd like to take a look at that hatchet, Jeffrey. <laughs> well, nice and sharp, especially these days. Just saying. <laughs> yes. Yep, yep. All right. And Amber Gordon. Amber. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again to listen to us. Um, this is Amber Gordon from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the token, enthusiastic, and curious student of the bunch. Well, you're a little more than a token student. I mean... <laughs> We were um, all it's, students it's, at one point. That's right. true. That's true. I'm just I'm just representing the progression at the current current purpose. Yeah. And of course, Grace Wilson. Hello. I missed you guys last month. I enjoyed listening to the podcast, but I've been orienting. I have four new behavioral health interns this year, and they're not just new to integrated care. They're new clinicians completely. So it can be a little bit of a steep learning curve, but they're doing such a great job settling in, and it's a really exciting part of my work. That's awesome. Yeah, a lot of us are dealing with uh, new trainees this time of year, whether they're medical residents or or behavioral health students. So, yeah, we all feel your pain. Yep. Enjoy. <laughs> and, and, and joy, Amber. And joy. Yeah, I was, was going to say pain. Jeez, guys. <laughs> the truth comes out. Right. So, yeah, great. So uh, it, it's uh, so great to have the team together and also to have Julie and Brian with us uh, here as well. Um, yeah, so all things PCBH today. Uh, I'm going to start off our conversation here about this special edition, which, uh, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, I guess full disclosure here, I was also an author on this, but I'm not promoting it here because uh, I authored one of the articles. It's just a really big deal um, to have the this sort of compiled all in one place in a special edition. Um, and, and to have a discipline, the discipline of psychology in this case, uh, recognize uh, the importance of, of making this happen. Um, and so uh, it, it's, it, it's a big deal on its own. And you'll hear from the co-editors later on in Grace's great interview with them why, why, they, why they did this and why they think this is a big deal. But I want to start off with the, the intro that the co-editors wrote that really puts all of this into an important context. So this is a direct quote from, from the abstract to the introductory article of the special edition. Here's what they say. In recent years in the United States, there's been a shift in primary care service delivery through patient-centered medical home implementation, a focus on the triple aim, and the passage of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. These efforts have set the stage for payers, primary care service professionals, and patients to expect integrated behavioral health services as an essential component of primary care. And what I thought was really, really critical about that introduction was really just that the authors, the co-editors chose to start by embedding the conversation about PCBH firmly within primary care and within the stream of everything that's happening with primary care. And this is really what uh, those of us who've been working in primary care for a long time have been talking about that what PCBH is at its core is really about making primary care great. In fact, the way I often describe it to folks is it's not an add-on to primary care. It's really what primary care should have been at, at its inception. It's what the original vision for what good whole person care ought to look like. Um, and it's not the full vision of that, but it's a piece of that vision that is so essential. And I think it's one of the reasons why the authors, I think, really embedded it in the stream of all the development that has occurred with primary care over time. And so uh, that, that really is what makes this such a seminal sort of set of articles in my mind. It really firmly plants PCBH in, the in all of the streams that have fed the emergence of primary care as a central place in the healthcare system. So 
just to get us going here, I'd, I'd like to sort of hear from uh, Julian Bryan just about sort of what what you feel like is particularly important um, about this special edition, and particularly uh, perhaps the articles that you guys contributed to. What what sort of drove you to um, to, to say, yeah, this is this is an important thing for us to focus and hone in on. So, Brian, can you give us a sense of, of what your thoughts are on that? Yeah. So, um, first of all, I want to give um, credit to Jen Bell, uh, Perinda Katri, and Patty Robinson, who um, helped me co-author um, the article. My The particular article that, that I authored was around um, how PCBH... Um, it really kind of relates to um, the patient-centered medical home and how those have really become synonymous. And, um, you know, I really connected with the article because it, it, it connects with my own personal journey and how I got my current position. Um, in 2012, um, my organization was um, just getting ready to start patient-centered medical home and um, the whole reorganization process around, um, you know, reorganizing primary care. And it just so happened um, it was a right place, right time kind of thing. And, um, you know, one meeting led to another meeting. Uh, I found myself in the corporate headquarters with the CEO, and uh, I remember telling him, and now I kind of, like, shy away, like, did I, was I actually that blunt? Um, I said, if you're not integrating behavioral health, how can you, be doing care that's truly patient-centered, um, you know, because this is this is a, a huge part of of primary care. Um, and after that conversation, um, he you know he hired me, and um, you know it was a program of one, uh, and now it's a program of sixteen, um, and um, we've grown as primary care has grown. So um, I, I think that. You know, kind of going back to the initial why this was, I found this important. I, I really found it, it connected with my own personal journey and, and what I believed primary care to be. Awesome. Julie, what, what about this was really important for you to be participating in? Oh, it was just delightful to be a part of this process. Um, you know, so I wrote an article that was led by Patricia Robinson and uh, included uh, Bridget Beachy and Jeff Goody, Lisa Sprague, Jennifer Bell, Mike Maples, and Christy Ward. Uh, just a whole group that was really focused on the aspect of primary care behavioral health in terms of um, actual primary care leadership. Um, primary care providers, nurses, really, um, you know, primary care behavioral health, we, we started off in this work really, um, rightfully so, focused on training behavioral health clinicians in a completely different way of working. Like you're trained in one way and now you're going to do something completely different. No, it's not completely like that, but um, but we really started off training BHCs to work in these primary care contexts that they really weren't trained to work in. Um, but we've been around long enough, which is so exciting to say. People know why we're needed in primary care and implementation of BHCs in primary care is just taking off. We're, we're becoming um, rooted in primary care. And I love how you led off with this, uh, Neftali. Primary care behavioral health is all about uh, improving primary care and bringing it to where everybody wants it to be. And that's whole person care. We just need these, these BHC types to help us get there. Um, so we, it's just exciting to be at this part of the, uh, the time in our field where we're writing these articles in, in addition, um, uh, putting down all these, in, this information about the primary care behavioral health model. And it's really exciting, um, that we are well into our workforce development with our BHCs and well into our workforce development with our primary care practices. Our, our article really focused on, uh, we need leaders, um, we need uh, primary care operations leaders. We need medical directors. Um, we need um, chief uh, CEOs. Uh, we need folks at the leadership tables uh, to be thinking about primary care behavioral health as perhaps uh, you know how they thought about other aspects of the patient-centered medical home. This is a um, this is a transformation of primary care itself. Um, it's it's more it's more than just putting a BHC in to take care of a clinic of 10,000 patients. Now we're putting a BHC in to take care of 
working with teams to work, take care of three to 6,000 patients. And really that every single patient who comes into primary care has a primary care provider. They have an RN, they have a behavioral health clinician. And it's just exciting that um, we can provide that kind of blanket um, whole person primary care to every patient that comes into the service. And so we are so, so, um, for, moving forward in this uh, in this work, that really where we our next steps is is all about leadership and un, having our leadership uh, in primary care understand this vision and then getting down into the the weeds and operationalizing this vision in teams. Like, what was it like when you built your patient-centered medical home and you put a PCP and an RN and a, an MA and um, panel managers working together and now you got a BHC in there too? What was all the work that had to be done on creating team-based work? Workflows um, to make that work right. The routine practices from everything from depression screening to SBIRD to when a patient comes up as being first diagnosed with diabetes, everything that we do in primary care now can be different because we have a whole different kind of service to add and, and provide to our patients in addition to the PCP and the RN. So, um, so I was just really excited um, to be asked to join in uh, in writing this um, this article with these colleagues. Um, really to focus in on, you know, the next things is uh, primary, we're just, you know, it's about leadership and teaching primary care providers and really changing primary care. And it's going beyond just the BHC clinical practice, which we are well on our way to developing our workforce around that. I'm involved in that game as well. But, you know, uh, but really on to changing primary care. It's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get to workforce issues as well, which is also the topic of my uh, article afterwards. But Jeff, you had something to say. Well, first, I just want to thank you both for extraordinary scholarship and um, just a really rich um, sort of um, flag in the flag in the sand saying that we are here and we are moving and we are moving forward um, and beginning to sort of set a set a, a path um, for what the next iterations will be. Um, I really resonated, Julie, so much to your article because you speak about things that I see either make or breaks success. And it is about leadership and it is about workforce. So my question for you is in hiring workforce, to what degree, what's the recipe? How much of it is attitude and emotional intelligence and character and communication skills? And how much is it the skills of actually training and what are the kind of interventions. Do you have a sense of where that falls and how you put those pieces together and what you look for when you're uh, hiring for and or building a workforce? Such and a I'll, be, I'll be furiously writing down the answer to this question. Uh, <laughs> I love this conversation. And um, what I usually respond to it is, yes, everything, everything you just said, that's what we want. Um, we need, it needs to have, there has to be the right temperament. There has to be kind of uh, this way of, of working with teams to the, the, you know, get, you know, I'm a little bit of an extrovert. I get my um, energy from being around people and I love learning about people and um, what's happening in their life. Um, it's just, I, I, I just love the love a community uh, uh, working together. It's just something that's in, you know, that I have. And I think that that is a helpful um, characteristic to have to work in uh, team-based care, uh, to really thrive off of that kind of interpersonal uh, dynamics that are happening all the time, because they certainly do. Um, I think that that is really essential. And, but I, I also have to say that this work is very complex technical um, work, and um, it requires um, a uh, just as a primary care provider requires a great breadth of information across so much from babies to to um, elders, um, anything that possibly could happen is going to walk into that primary care door um, for a family practice doctor. Uh, the training that's required for a primary care uh, behavioral health provider, particularly in family practice, I think is the same. One has to have um, a very large breadth of knowledge in um, screening and um, clinical assessment and diagnosis in the best evidence-based psychosocial interventions from cognitive behavioral therapy to uh, you know, acceptance and commitment. You have to have um, across all ages um, be able to walk into any primary care room with any patient for any issue and feel confident enough to say, okay, let's figure out what's going on. Okay, let's, we'll, we'll talk about that and, and I'll have something, we'll be able to figure something out together that will help. Um, so the people that are needed for this job, I think it's kind of, I think it probably is difficult to hire for the family practice role as well. It's the same thing for us. Um, you have to have this, this generalist capability, um, 
Um, and yeah, I, I, it's going to take a lot of work in from our academics on moving forward uh, to train people to have this great breadth of ability to walk into anything and feel like they can do something and work on yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Superhero so that's, training, essentially. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'd, I'd like to return to that theme because I know Brian and I have had conversations about uh, workforce development over the years um, as well around that topic that, you know, and I think, uh, Jeffrey, what you're alluding to is um, there really are these two major components, right? Um, I think the, the, the piece that I love that you emphasize, Jeffrey, is you always emphasize the leadership piece and those intangible elements that are crucial for team-based care. In other words, you can have all the technical stuff, but if you don't have those other uh, leadership and other intangible team-based care skills, you're you're just useless. And so we'll return to that piece of the conversation, but I want to make sure that our good friend Deepu gets in here because I know he's got some thoughts as well for us. Yeah, I was uh, one, I, I think with Naftali's comment that the fact that this is rooted and it's officially recognized within primary care, I think is one of the best things to let the world know about the work that we're doing. We just finished uh, orienting our interns to our clinic. Uh, and then I was sort of uh, referencing the um, IOM 1994 definition of primary care to talk about PCBH. So rooted in that, my question to both of our guests are, uh, twofold, and maybe some of this will get addressed in the workforce conversation a little later. I think for me, the biggest turn on uh, and shift in my perspective was to help me locate my identity as a primary care provider and not as a uh, family therapist or a behavioral health uh, faculty. It was just sort of saying, oh, I'm part of this larger workforce. Um, so what is uh, what are some of the ways that you think uh, traditional providers who are more focused on specialty mental health and all the assumptions of that care uh, to sort of get them to shift onto this? And then the second question that I have is connected to Jeffrey's earlier conversation about leadership. Um, so uh, stick with my analogy here, if you will. So I, I sort of see primary care and PCBH as two amazing things, almost like really rich chocolate cake and chocolate mousse, right? And so let's just say the rich chocolate mousse is the PCBH folks that want to come in. I think most people sort of see uh, having primary care and behavioral health. So it's like it's still separate and equal or separate but equal sort of philosophy. How do you get leadership to bake the mousse into the chocolate cake so that when you actually take a bite, uh, you're actually sort of uh, getting the, the the mousse inside that rich chocolate cake. Of course, this mousse-based uh, chocolate cake is plant-based. I'm not arguing for any uh, dairy-based <laughs> stuff here. <laughs> but uh, so I always see how do you? What is the pathway for leadership to begin to adopt that and sort of see it as an integral part of their operational, clinical, financial models? Wow. Well, f before before you even answer that question, I we probably like need to go to a commercial break to go get some food now. Uh, and all of a sudden, I'm going to order chocolate mousse for dinner tonight when we go out. So thanks. It looks like Deepu has mousse in his hair, actually. Uh, Deepu, yeah. Deepu is chocolate mousse. That's, that should be his nickname there. That's right. Chocolate mousse. Smooth, man. Um, smooth. All right. I, I'm not a baker, um, but I have made a cake with just add water, and it doesn't turn out well. <laughs> and um, so, and I think that there's a parallel of just adding a BHC right. doesn't turn out well, too. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, I, I can take the baker question and maybe uh, address the first part as well. Um, I think in order to bake the cake, um, you have to have the ingredients working well together. And in order for that to, to work well together, you have to become um, you have to become a part of the regular primary care delivery across things that matter to primary care. So right now in the state of Oregon, we um, and Washington alike, um, we're incentivized for specific metrics, right? Specific things that the clinic is responsible for. And um, in order to be part of the cake, 
um, imported in order to be baked in, you have to be baked into the workflows that matter organically to, to primary care clinics. Um, for us, it's diabetes management, ESPERT, um, depression screening and follow-up. Those are things that, that we have to do. And um, if we contribute in a meaningful way and are part of those workflows, um, you, you become part of the cake and not just an ingredient. You, instead of becoming a referral um, which I think is is the frosting, right? You're just getting a warm handoff. You actually become part of the the actual um, protocol, right? And and we've seen. I, I think something I want to allude to. Um, we've seen different strategies towards. Um, we talk about pathways in our our paper. Um, groups don't work for every clinic. Uh, I can tell you that uh, from experience. Um, we have, you know, 18 clinics across our system, and not everyone you know, is amenable to a group. So it's it's finding unique ways that that um, are already happening in primary care and making yourself a part of what's already going on. Um, so for depression screening and follow-up, we are a regular part of that process. It's not that they even need to, to call on us. They just know that we're there. And so kind of the first part of the question is, well, how do you train someone to that? And I think it goes back to getting away from the traditional model of supervision and workforce development. And it goes into more of that preceptorship that happens organically in primary care. Primary care providers learn by doing, right? They learn by being involved in a live environment, um, being a part of the actual workflow and getting, you know, in vivo feedback and training. And I think that we have to parallel that as, as behavioral health consultants to, to be relevant at this stage. And I think um, being relevant on the training front and then being relevant on what matters to primary care clinics really bakes it in organically. Thanks, Brian. Um, I also want to make sure that uh, Grace gets in the conversation here as well, because she had a great time interviewing uh, the co-editors uh, the coders, by the way, are Chris Hunter, Ann Dobmeyer, and Jeff Ryder, uh, just three luminary folks in the PCBH world who've done tremendous work on this. So that that it was a great interview. Grace, um, you know, what, what I just want to ask you as you think about that interview and, and think about the folks that we have here today, what, what struck you the most about this, uh, about this edition and, and about talking with the, the editors? You know, I, they really captured and, and they'll speak more about this in the in the interview kind of the part of the importance to them was thinking about what does the research actually say what can we what have we actually operationalized about the pcbh model and let's have a cohesive consistent voice about that so that it can grow and you know be promoted and be expanded over and over and so i was wondering um kind of from you guys about that piece. Um, you know, we were thinking about that when we were planning for this podcast in sort of a, a past, present, and future kind of way that, you know, this model has developed and both of you have, as you said, had a great kind of history with it and have been really working on it and a voice for it. And so where do you see that, you know, what is the state of things right now and where do you see us moving into the future as far as what the research and literature actually says? I think we become a primary care team member. Um, I'm hoping in 10 to 20 years, um, I go to my primary care provider. I know what, what to expect when I go to my primary care provider. I'm gonna come in the door, I'm gonna talk to the nice lady at the reception, um, I'm gonna wait, um, a nice MA is gonna come get me, bring me back to my visit, ask me a few questions, and then say, hey, wait for the provider who's gonna come and talk to you in a second. I have a very clear, I don't know if you all, uh, very clear understanding about what to expect when I come into my primary care office. What I'd like to see in 10 to 20 years, or faster even, um, is that uh, that we that the BHC becomes part of that expectation of primary care. Um, it includes mental health. It includes when substances are starting to impact our lives, and it in, uh, includes when I need to, you know, lose some weight to uh, decrease my risk for for diabetes and some other health concerns. Um, I need to start exercising more. 
Um, there are things um, in my family that uh, I could work on that could make uh, communication better. Um, I, I would like uh, in the next uh, few years to get to a point where um, it is just uh, understood that when those kind of issues come up, then I'm going to talk to someone like Brian um, and he's going to be able to help me with his background as a psychologist. And that's just the expectation for primary care, just as the expectation is now as um, as laid out um, before. So that's what I'm looking forward to. And I think we are very close. We're starting to talk about things like how many BHCs will it take to get that done? Um, and we're starting to do that. Um, and we're starting to think about all patients that come into primary care providing bio, psycho, social services and being staffed appropriate to be actually able to do that, um, which it requires people like us to actually be able to do that. And I think that's another final barrier is having full agreement that yes, it takes people like us at robust levels within the primary care space, just as it takes what is necessary for our, what RNs do, it takes them to get that done. What, what's necessary for PCPs to do, it takes them to get that done. Um, what we do as behavioral health clinicians, it takes us to get that done in primary care at robust levels, just as other all the other team roles. So that is what I'm looking forward to, and I really believe it will happen. Um, it, it, if you don't mind me jumping in, um, I think a couple things I'd like to, to say. Um, I think that this article, special edition, was really important because it defines what we do. And you have to define what you do before you can actually change the system. And you have to have consistency. So for example, in the state of Oregon, we had to define what it was. And, and shortly thereafter, two years later, I worked on a policy bit in Washington to define what this integrated behavioral health care is, right? We had to define it in order to pay for it and change the policy mechanisms to make it a standard of care. Um, right now in Oregon, in order to be the highest level of patient-centered, we call it PCPCH, primary care, primary care patient-centered home, in order to be the highest level of that, you have to have integrated behavioral health care. You, you aren't able to achieve the highest level. And so we've reorganized primary care um, in a way that you have to have behavioral health as a standard part of what you do. And I think in, in, and I think that this article um, and having a definition and research and um, talking about workforce um, helps us insert our place so that when we go to the higher levels, um, we can actually make a case for this and make a cogent argument. Can I ask yeah. a follow-up question? Um, and I'd love to include you in this too, Natalia is another author in the issue. I think uh, we know that we have kind of two different distinct pieces of our audience for our podcast. We have people who are on the ground clinicians doing the work like solely clinically focused. And then we have people who are more, you know, research focused and leadership. And I think sometimes there can feel like a disconnect between those two things. Clinicians can feel like they don't have anything to offer to research. Um, researchers can, you know, the kind of the flip side of the more advanced you can get sometimes in leadership roles, you can get disconnected from what's going on on the ground. Um, and so I wonder what you would say to kind of both of those groups about how how clinicians can be contributing to research and the growth of the field and how our leaders who are listening can stay connected to what's going on the ground with our clinicians. Yeah, that's a great question, Grace. Um, I'll, I'll take a quick stab at it and then either Julie and Brian can jump in here. But I, I think actually this, this special edition, I think what makes it exciting is that this is um, an example of that. So most of the folks, you see the, the authors here, are folks who are clinicians contributing to the literature. Um, and I would, gather, I would venture to say that many of the folks, many of the authors are, are folks who um, probably 10 years ago may, be, may not have seen themselves in that role of contributing to the literature. Um, and here they are 10 years later taking that step. And I think that's because um, there has been this greater recognition of exactly what you're talking about, that we have to have this sort of bi-directional flow of information from the ground up and from the higher levels down. And this is uh, a great example that clinicians um, can really feed that information back and, and produce research. Um, and so I, and, and I would encourage folks to read the particular review of research 
um, that that is one of the articles in the uh, in the special edition that does a good and I think fair job of covering um, the pluses of the research out there related to PCBH, but also some of the holes, some of the areas we really need some better research and better um, better direction. In fact, I would point to one of the things that I think it was Chris Hunter said in the interview where uh, that you'll hear later on here, where he says, what we need now is research that points specifically to the areas where PCBH, the populations and the settings where PCBH is going to work effectively. In other words, moving from these more sort of global evaluations of PCBH to really looking at specific populations and subgroups and particular settings as well. So uh, how does it work in family medicine? How does it work at an FQHC versus a VA versus a group uh, versus a uh, an HMO uh, setting, et cetera? So these these are all kind of key pieces. Um, I just want to add, if I could, really quickly, that I really wanted Dr. Hunter to go a little bit farther. I mean, he did. He does say that we need to really expand the research, and and um, and he he makes an allusion to underserved communities. But but we need to turn the fire up on. Um, again, and I always sort of bring this back, but um, health inequities and morbidity and mortality are about life and death. And we have in our hands incredible tools to make a difference. Not, not only um, the screening and the interventions that we do, but so often we, the primary care behavioral health people, are the voice of ethics and the voice of relationship-centered care and the voice of empathic communication that can get lost. And I understand with, um, you know, electronic health records and productivity demands, but, but really th this, I think, building the bridge to um, access um, of this kind of quality care to underserved um, and, uh, and highly um, at-risk populations is really worth shouting, I would say. Yeah, great point. And Julie, I know you want to jump in here, but uh, just to to uh, pile on there with Jeffrey, you know, one of the things that's that gets me most and, and really has energized my career, frankly, around PCBH is that really most of the work in PCBH these days is with underserved populations. And these folks working as BHCs do serve as a voice of advocacy for these populations to highlight the inequities that are there. Even in areas where, as BHCs, we don't, we ourselves don't have the power to bridge the particular inequities, but we we notice them and we 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 yell out to the health systems around us and to the care teams and and to the payers. Sometimes I've we've had these conversations with payers and myself and say, hey, this is not just something needs to change here. And having that member of a team is is uh, j that's one added bonus of having a member of the team in these sort of key settings. But Julie, you were about to jump in. Well, I couldn't agree more with everything that you just said. And just the opportunity as a psychologist. I mean, I, I can't imagine not working in primary care. The opportunity uh, to really, we don't get to see the patients that we get to see in primary care. We get to see everybody. And it's what we have to give um, in the field of behavioral health is great uh, to help improve the health of our populations. Um, and it's it's wide and, and uh, being in primary care helps us um, break down stigma and, and break down um, barriers uh, for particular uh, groups to receive really helpful information from the behavioral sciences. So I can't imagine doing uh, work else, elsewhere because of that experience. Um, the other thing I was going to say uh, in terms of the research aspect is, I, I, maybe it's out there and I haven't seen it, um, so I would just really like to see um, in one system, um, you know, if I was queen for a day, you know, one system that has the same team goals, um, the same performance expectations, um, and um, the same external drivers and um, internal expectations. Um, a team that includes, um, you know, the PCP and the BHC and the RN all doing their work, and then a, the, a team that, um, you know, is primary care as usual. And seeing, looking at those team metrics, those external drivers, what the team is supposed to do, um, and see how well the work gets done 
we know in primary care, we don't have enough hands to get all the work done. That is the reason why we have a quadruple aim at this point. Uh, we have provider burnout, we have healthcare burn, uh, worker burnout. Uh, we, we need more help. Um, and the area that we need more help is particularly in the psychosocial domain. So I would like to see um, something like that, uh, that looks at the differences uh, between performance on the things that people are already being expected to do by multiple different external and internal factors um, and seeing how, uh, may, and then monitoring the, the health of those care teams. Um, I, yeah, I just would love to see that. So I, I can jump, I wanna jump in here real quick. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I can tell you that, you know, I wasn't a heavy researcher before I entered primary care. But one of the things that happens is re research questions come up organically as you begin to practice. Um, they, become, they, they become a part of um, problems that you're trying to solve. Um, because, and, and the greatest way you become integrated is if they're primary care problems. Um, not just behavioral health problems, right? And uh, one of the things that I think, and, and I'm kind of going to shift gears a little bit here, one of the things I think is is a little bit not talked about is the burnout that's going on in primary care right now. Uh, we shifted to quadruple aim because we need to think about the health of our primary care providers. And I would say primary care staff burnout is at an all-time high right now. It's a tough place to be. We know it works. We know in Oregon that we get $12 back from every $1 we spend, right, on PCPCH. But we also know that there's a lot of extra work that has to happen. And I think that what we haven't really focused on is, is how to take care of the people who take care of the patients. Um, and uh, I, I would like to see, uh, one area I'd like to see is, is how, um, you know, BHCs and, and behavioral health, primary care behavioral health providers um, help mitigate that. And, and, and at the same time, how are BHCs taking care of themselves? How are we as a workforce not becoming a part of that burnout larger picture? Um, and I think the last thing unrelated, I would say, is how are we utilizing technology and all of the things that um, are happening? And how are, we, how are we becoming a part of that um, process? Um, I can tell you, we started tele-BHC work um, this year and can serve two clinics simultaneously. Um, that was a huge win. Um, those are patients that didn't get care. Um, so I'd like to see us push the envelope. And I think the research questions come organically from, again, the problems you're trying to solve uh, and not just behavioral health problems, but primary care problems. Yeah, so we are having a great conversation. These are all great points. Um, we're running up against uh, the uh, end of our podcast. So I want to make sure we come circle back uh, to a thread that cuts through a lot of this conversation, which is the workforce conversation. And Brian, you hit on one of the two pieces of that workforce conversation that are important. Um, Julie, earlier you said, hey, how are we going to train people up? to make this happen and to, to make this a standard of care. And then Brian, you brought up, and how are we gonna take care of these people? Uh, because primary care is a place where there's, there's a, a ton of burnout. Um, and so uh, those are two huge questions. Um, our article on workforce development in the edition talks about what's happening now and gives some recommendations for what needs to happen, both at the very early stages. We even gave some recommendations there for undergraduate uh, uh, exposure to the idea of mental health professionals, social workers, psychologists, MFTs, that if you're thinking of going into any of those uh, fields that, hey, primary care is an option for you so that we begin to cultivate folks who are primed for this kind of work. So you can read that article for a little bit more in-depth on sort of what might help us going forward to establish that workforce. I don't know. I was trying to think through if, if there's anything in the edition on burnout, but, it, it, but that's a big issue. That is a, I'm glad you brought it up, Brian, that uh, it, it, it's an issue uh, for workforce development because if we train all these people to go into the workforce like we're doing with primary care providers, and then they get disenchanted with the work, um, you know, then we've just got a dysfunctional system. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the other outstanding questions here. But before we 
uh, go to our um, our interview with the co-editors here to wrap up our podcast, I wanted to get the student perspective because, um, Amber, you've listened to all these professionals talk. You're entering this this sort of uh, integrated care career for yourself, even if it's not PCBH-centered specifically. You know, as you listen to this and hear these professionals talk from a student, what kind of crosses your mind about all this? What what uh, thoughts, fears, concerns kind of does this bring up for you? Well, I, I like the whole flag in the in the sand thing that was pointed out because I got into doing this work. I was a trained marriage and family therapist, um, and then I had a personal experience with um chronic illness. And that's when the gap was visible to me. I honestly didn't even know that there was a population out there that needed to be served in this way until I became a part of it. And I think that is something that is an issue across the board where we've compartmentalized things so much where, you know, we have these people dealing with the body and these people dealing with the mind and these people dealing with you know, the family system or their spiritual aspect. Um, and I really feel so strongly about the work that's being done in this particular area, trying to bring all of that together and be holistically minded about treating our, our patients and caring for those populations in a way that actually makes sense because we're not just a brain. We're not just a body. We're not just, um, you know, one person existing in a vacuum, we exist in these systems. And for me, it made such sense coming from a systemic perspective. My kind of curiosity at this point is how you would all kind of address someone who is in the beginning of the field and what you would say are the key elements to really be pushing for or trying to move forward with or who we should be talking to or communicating with to express the need for this type of care and just kind of help spread the word about, you know, the benefits and where we can kind of work to insert ourselves to help expand uh, the reach of this model. Great question. Real quickly, Julie, Brian, your quick thoughts. Yeah. Well, um, what's an exciting thing that I see happening here in Oregon is that there's a lot of uh, coming together of the community in terms of primary care behavioral health. There's uh, collaboratives of leaders, um, uh, I people coming together, um, not just uh, related to particular professions, but interprofessional. Uh, social workers, LCSW, psychologists, if there is some place, um, some collaborative um, that's working on integrated care, particularly primary care behavioral health, that would be an amazing thing for a student to be able to plug in and listen to. Um, I, I look forward to more collaboratives happening around uh, building primary care behavioral health locally. That's something that's really strong here in Oregon and a lot of energy around in multiple different areas um, that's really impact impactful, but also too with um, the collaborative family health care. I think that's a good place to plug in uh, in terms of the multiple different advocacy avenues, um, educational avenues. Um, so that's a great place too. Yeah, I, I, I think I think this the sooner um, we can, this is Brian, I think the sooner we can introduce primary care and behavioral health as a part of that, the sooner in the education process, the better. I also think it begins with the general public. Um, one of the things that's big out here in Oregon and Washington is mental health first aid, which is treating, teaching folks, um, lay folks, how to identify um, behavioral health concerns. And it starts to get people talking about emotional health as a regular part of healthcare. Um, so I think it, it starts with just getting an awareness out there. And I, and, and unfortunately with, you know, some of the things that are going on right now um, in, you know, in our, our society with, with at schools and, you know, suicide rates, um, it's getting talked about in a, in a problem sort of way. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's a discussion around being part of the solution and why primary care is a very important facet of that, of solving that problem and being part of that solution. Great. Thank you so much, Julie and Brian, for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate having you. Hopefully we can have you back sometime in the future, hear what's going on uh, in a larger context in Oregon. Uh, we really appreciate it. 
Now we're going to cut to our interview with uh, the co-editors. Grace Wilson uh, did a great job with this interview. I hope you enjoy this interview. Um, and then on the other end, we'll come back with our sending meditation. Um, I know I look forward to this. It's probably my favorite part of the podcast here uh, as Deepesh takes us uh, away. But first, here's Chris Hunter and Dobmeyer, Jeff Ryder with Grace Wilson. Well, welcome. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm really excited to talk with you about the special issue. I wonder if we could just get started by you introducing yourself so that our listeners can get to know a little bit about who you are and also start to recognize your voices. Sure. I'm Jeff Ryder, and I'm a clinical psychologist and been working in integrated primary care for about 16 years now. Um, uh, All of that doing the PCBH model. Hello, I'm Ann Dobmeyer. I'm a clinical health psychologist. Uh, I'm an active duty officer in the U.S. Public Health Service and have been uh, involved with integrated primary care using the PCBH model in the Department of Defense for the last 17 or 18 years. And like Ann, I'm also a clinical health psychologist. I'm a United States Public Health Service officer as well, and have been, I work for the Department of Defense and have been working in a PCBH model of service delivery for about the last 18 years. Awesome. Well, you guys clearly bring so much experience um, to this. So tell me a little bit about how this even came about and maybe what some of your initial goals were with putting together this issue. So I I think it initially came about through a conversation Jeff and I were having uh, at one of the CFHA conferences and discussing how cool it would be to kind of have a one-stop shopping place where folks could go, where we had you know, diverse group of professionals across the country, you know, working in different areas, really starting to set a, um, a standard about, um, or shared understanding of what is the PCBH model? Cause we'd read different things and in, in different publications and some of the publications had certain pieces, others didn't. There seemed to be some confusion when I talked to people about what the model was and what it wasn't. And we thought, well, this is a way where we can maybe start to really set that shared understanding and standard about, you know, what are the core components of the PCBH model? And then, um, kind of, in terms of right here and now, kind of where are we with science and financing and other pieces that go along with that? Yeah, and I would uh, add that I, I I think our initial intent, if I remember correctly, was actually just to write one article. Um, and so we gathered a, <laughs> yes, a group. Right. <laughs> yeah, yes. so, Clearly so, it grew from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so somewhere along the line, um, uh, the idea was thrown out to uh, – to pursue something much broader, um, and uh, uh, so we decided to uh, to go for it and uh, started recruiting the authors, and um, and uh, it all turned out well in 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 the end. Yeah, well, I was you know even just reading through the issue, it does feel kind of like you're saying, Chris, of the state of things. I mean, really helping to understand from so many different perspectives and about so many different aspects of PCBH and. Um, So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of the topics that are covered? So if someone's coming into this and hasn't had a chance to look over and has missed your wonderful announcements to the listserv and the other great things that you guys have done to um, kind of publicize this, but what could they expect um, that are kind of the main themes that are covered? The first article, uh, kind of the lead article, is... um, Uh, the article that really goes into the definition of the PCBH model. So provides a definition um, and really operationalize it as Chris was describing earlier to kind of set the stage and try to move towards a shared understanding and common language of the components of the model. From there, we wanted to include articles that looked at training and workforce development, um, certainly of the behavioral health provider, but also of other members of the primary care team. Um, We've got uh, an article in there looking at research, kind of the state of the science of PCBH model, um, and also articles focusing on policy, uh, financing the model, um, kind of ethical aspects. So uh, quite a number of topics. I'm sure I'm forgetting some. 
it, it does feel like you kind of cover the range of every different way that you could look at PCBH. Uh, you, you mentioned a minute ago that you, you tried to include authors from a, a number of different backgrounds and just a real diversity of voices um, all across, you know, different geographic locations. Could you tell me some more about the people that you wanted to include and that you did include in this? Well, I think we had 29 authors total. Um, right. Yep. Yeah. 29 total. And yeah, I mean, it was a fantastic uh, array, I think, of people. I mean, we had... Um, uh, we had clinicians, we had CEOs, CFOs, CMOs, um, we had social workers, uh, primary care physicians, psychologists. We had people from the DOD, from the VA, from the FQHC world, from the commercial sector. Uh, we had people in the uh, educational settings like family medicine residency programs and graduate schools uh, for psychology. We had trainers, consultants, we had policy people. So I think that, you know, we we um, we were able to really bring in a, a diverse array of perspectives. And that was to me, that was one of the, you know, the, the, the coolest things about this really was bringing all of these um, national experts together to speak about PCBH um, with um, uh, a unified voice. Which is really in the spirit of the model of so many interdisciplinary people coming together to to promote this. Um, you know, with so many different people and perspectives, um, even though there was that diversity of voices, what were some of the themes that you noticed coming through or things that maybe came up over and over or, or takeaways that were consistent across the issue? I think there was a theme of that people were excited about this. People wanted to continue to push. They wanted to share their experience. Um, I also got the sense of, which I think was part of the reason we wanted to do the initial article on on the core components of, of the model. I still got a sense sometimes that people thought maybe the model was more defined than it actually had been in the literature. So I think that that was, that was good that we did that article. And I got the impression from some people that they thought the literature on the PCBH model was much more robust than it actually is, in my opinion. And I was the lead author on the um, article that reviewed the research. And so as, as I was editing things, I would see that sometimes people were making some assumptions about what was out there in the literature and it wasn't necessarily in the literature, but it was maybe their own unique clinical experience, was in, which is important. But I think, you know, being able to say this is my own unique clinical experience and not state it as it's a fact across all clinics and all kinds of service deliveries and patients that are being seen. How about you, Jeff and Ann? What'd you see? I think one of the themes that uh, cut across many of the articles was the, was the sense of we've come a long way. And we have a long way to go. Um, yeah. So both looking at, wow, look look what has been developed. Look what um, progress and milestones have been made. You know, whether it's looking at, um, you know, training, training efforts and workforce development or creative efforts <laughs> for financing and policy developments in, in different areas of the country. But also that there, there's um, s still a need for additional work, for additional advocacy, for additional, you know, incorporation of this into curriculum in in training programs, kind of through the through the training life cycle. Um, you know, further efforts needed, uh, certainly in in research. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I I agree. It, it kind of seemed to me like. Um, uh, this 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 article um, represents kind of the tipping point for for PCBH. Um, at least I hope so. But it, it, it feels that way to me, in the sense that um, uh, there, there's been, I think, like Chris was talking about, a, a, 
a pretty diverse, really, kind of understanding of what is the PCBH model. Uh, and yet, somehow, it continues to spread organically. And it, it, it just seems like the time is right now in the field to to bring everybody together and say, okay, we've, um, we're at a point where we can really come together. But this is far from a, a, a finishing point. It's really more of a launch point. And from here, we need to think about where do we how can we move forward in terms of what kind of research can we do? How can we uh, train people, you know, differently and so forth? So, so it, it's. I feel like the timing of the article represents kind of a tipping point, but I see it as sort of a launch point then for where we go from here. Well, that really kind of gets into another thing that I really wanted to ask you was, what role do you see this article playing in? you know, hopefully kind of the history of integrated care, when we look back, what, what do you hope um, that this will accomplish? On a very basic level, I, uh, not, and not that this is simple, but I hope that this um, really helps move the field forwards in, in, uh, again, that, that common language and common understanding of what are the key components of this model. Um, and the more that that can be used in, um, you know, defining what's being done in different research settings and different educational settings, the more we can ensure that um, we're talking about apples and apples, you know, when we're comparing studies, for example. Right, exactly. I mean, I, I think this lack of a shared understanding um, of what the PCBH model actually is um, really um, will be a, a, a hindrance to its growth. You know, we're going to hit a ceiling with how far we can we can go with this if we don't come to more of a shared understanding uh, of what the it is um, here. So that because uh, without that shared understanding, you can't have the research and the training and the policy initiatives and the payment reform and so forth that um, that really hopefully will, will happen um, in the future. I, I agree with what both Ann and Jeff said and I also hope that uh, it really does energize people to think differently, to collaborate with people in terms of developing effective trainings, looking at both implementation and patient outcomes, um, and really serves as, uh, like we talked about, a little bit of a launching pad or a roadmap of, okay, kind of here's where we are. Now, kind of take it and continue to move it down the field and make it make it even better and and join with the community that's doing this so that you, you don't have to be out there on an island doing it by yourself. Yes. Yeah, so it's the connecting of it all and defining it in a way that can bring people together and unify that research and that purpose and policy to take us into the future, which gets into my kind of next sort of final question is what do you imagine for the future of PCBH? What do you see, um, you know, in 10 years or in 20 years, do you think it's going to look the same? Do you think it's going to be different? What kind of conjecture or wild expectations or hopes do you have? I think my hope is that, um, that we continue to collect more data about this model and the components of the model and what pieces of the model seem to be um, important in terms of implementing it well, in terms of getting the kinds of patient outcomes that are important, being able to look at those outcomes, are they consistent among uh, different kinds of patient presentations, among different kinds of patients or cultural um, differences. Uh, I would uh, hope that as we learn more, that we can start to standardize how we how we train people to do evidence-based assessments and interventions in this model and work in an evidence-based way to really leverage the team, that that can start to go out to a variety of different um, uh, schools, uh, not only medical schools, but also uh, schools that are training psychologists, social workers, nurses, um, and that to just, I, I hope, make this as a, instead of, oh, look, it's this kind of new thing that looks kind of cool and want to try it. Um, instead of that, having it be an expected part of primary care services. And so that's, that's where I'm, I'm hoping it'll go. Yeah. And just um, kind of elaborating a little further on Chris's comments, 
I, I hope this is um, will be an expected part of primary care services from the patient's perspective, right? That when they come to a new primary care clinic, they expect that there's a behavioral health consultant there, you know, practicing in the PCBH model, even if they don't know those words. But also that's in a, it, it's an expected um, component for, for primary care providers. So, um, you know, someone who's just out of residency and, uh, you know, starting their work as a primary care physician arrives at their clinic and looks around, where's my behavioral health consultant? Again, so it's really a, um, a standard part of what's expected as part of routine primary care services. Yeah, I think that's something that um, we really uh, try, you know, saw emphasized in a lot of the articles that um, this theme that that uh, we want the behavioral health provider to really be just considered a, a routine part of the primary care team. And, and you know, so, so I agree with everything that, um, uh, that Chris and Ann were saying. And I think that, you know, if we're trying to, to look into the future here for PCBH, um, it's kind of hard to know, right? Because we're, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're entwined, I think, with the future of primary care, or at least hopefully we are. Uh, we're hopefully not a siloed service that just happens to be in primary care, but we are actually um, a part of primary care. So as primary care evolves, uh, PCBH model is going to evolve too. So there are all sorts of changes, as we all know, happening in primary care with accessibility, right? Like uh, telehealth and different ways for uh, patients and providers to be getting and and, and conveying information um, and uh, express care visits um, that are popping up at uh, every CVS pharmacy, you know, around the country and elsewhere and, um, and the shift towards value-based payments. Um, uh, and so there, there's so much change going on in primary care and that's, that's hopefully we're going to be, we're going to be along for the wild and crazy ride with it. Um, and we will, we will grow and adapt to all of that like primary care, uh, itself is. Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. And thank you for everything that you've done in this issue to help operationalize the idea of PCBH, move forward the research and the conversation. And we're just very thankful um, for for that contribution that you've made um, to our field and also to our podcast. So thank you all. And our thanks to Chris Hunter, Jeff Ryder, and Ann Dobmeyer for that interview with Grace Wilson. Um, this has been a great podcast. It, it, you know, there's so many things still left unsaid, but it gives us more to talk about at, in future podcasts. Um, thank you again for listening. Uh, taking us away as usual um, is our uh, good friend, Deepu. Deepu, take us out. All right. Uh, the the reflection that I have, the ascending meditation that I have for us today is a poem by Khwaja Shamsuddin Muhammad Haifiz Shirazi, or more popularly known as Haifiz. And the poem is called That Moon Language, or With That Moon Language. I think it sort of reflects what Jeffrey talked about earlier uh, in relation to being the relationship-centered care people that we can be. Uh, to make the biggest difference in the lives of our patients and, more importantly, lives of our teams and ourselves. Uh, so here it goes. Admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course, you do not do this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with the full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Join us next month on the Integrated Care Podcast. Mm-hmm.